Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I'm chatting with Angie Cruz about How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Angie is the author of the novels How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, Soledad, Let It Rain Coffee, and Dominicana, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize and a Good Morning America book club pick. She is an associate professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh. I loved this book and really enjoyed chatting with Angie about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Angie. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here because I absolutely loved How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. And I'm so thrilled to pieces that we're going to get to talk about it. Oh, I'm so glad you left it. It's really just such an entertaining story with an important message, but there's so much humor interwoven. And to me, that makes the best kind of read. Well, you know, I think that for me, like when I'm in a difficult situation, I use humor for levity. And, you know, I grew up in a working class neighborhood where a lot of things would go wrong. And we would always laugh so we didn't cry. And I think that that spirit of trying to create some levity to survive some of the very difficult situations we were in is something I wanted to bring to Cara Romero as a character. Well, and I think that you do cover a lot of important, sad, heartbreaking topics. But I think adding the humor in is going to bring so many more people to the story as well. And it also just mixes the sad and the happy, which I think you know, as you're saying, is just sort of a way of life as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think, I think I'm pretty funny. I think all my books have (laughs) used humor in a certain way. But I think this book, um, a lot of people are saying, I didn't realize how funny you are. (laughs) I said, maybe it's Cara Romero, who's really funny. I do feel like I channeled the character like, and um, of course, you know, I've been writing for a very long time over 20 years. 
And, you know, in the revision, I, I made a lot of changes and I had to scale back um, some of the tangents that the character wanted to take. But I do think that there's something about Garajal Romero's voice that was so vivid in my mind that I was kind of chasing it too. Like I was trying to keep up with Gara Romero and everything she wanted to tell me about her life. And, you know, as the writer, I say this to someone and they, who's not a writer and they think I might be a little crazy, but I think that writers understand when they cap, like when they find a character that literally keeps them up at night. And she was that kind of character for me. Well, I definitely think that translates to the page in terms of her coming to life. But let's back up a little bit, because usually my first question is just tell me a little bit about the book for those that won't have read it yet. But I just had so many things I already wanted to say that we kind of dove in. But let's talk a little bit about the story and just give me a quick summary. Cara Romero was unemployed during the Great Recession after working in the same factory for 25 years. And she now has to find a job. And she's never gone on a job interview before. So through a special program, called the Senior Workforce Program. She meets with a job counselor every week um, where she's being asked very typical job interview questions such as, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And that's how the novel started. I started asking these questions to my character, creating a very specific constraint for myself where I only wrote her answers while I was on a moving train, bus, or plane on my phone. And I did this because I was at a moment in my career where I felt that I wasn't sure if I was going to continue writing because publishing became so hard for me and I was receiving a lot of rejections. And I wanted to figure out if writing, like I wanted to tap into the writer I was 20 years ago, which was the writer that was writing on the buses and trains. Every minute I could get, I was like jotting down notes and expanding my stories. and. That's how I did it. Got on Romero every day. Every day I got on a train or I jumped on a plane. I asked her a question and I answered on a Google Doc. Well, how did you come up with the idea generally? The idea of her speaking to a job counselor, doing the 12 sessions, and then all the hilarious applications and paperwork and things like that that she's filling out. I mean, that was a process, right? So initially I started in this way where I downloaded, I, I, you know, I looked up 40 questions, popular interview questions. And that was my first draft where I would write a section of her answering these questions. And I did that for about a year and got to know her. And then after I learned so much about this character, I realized, wait, this is not a novel. This is just someone telling me everything they want me to know about their lives. <laughs> answering questions. Yeah. So that's when I went in and I was like, okay, what's really interesting about Cara Romero? What, what am I really trying to do here? And I came up with this, you know, senior workforce. There were these programs in the Great Recession. The government offered these programs um, for people who had run out of their weeks from, you know, collecting unemployment benefits, where if they went to study or they met with counselors, like for a certain amount of week job training, they were able to continue getting unemployment checks. And I thought, okay, what if I have got a middle showing up every week to do job training? But more like what I discovered in that process, right, as I had, I was like curating these sessions and revising these sessions was that the story became less about her finding a job, but the importance of her telling her story and how storytelling, 
even to, you know, to anyone who's willing to listen, actually allows us to transform. It, it sort of like proved to me in some way why I became a storyteller, why I love stories, and, and also the, the power of storytelling. Well, it works so well for this story. And she literally is just the most delightful character. And she does just go off on these tangents. And she's telling all this stuff about her life. And, you know, over each session, you're learning more and more. And you did a wonderful job of dispensing that information. And not only does she really bring her own life and those around her to life, but she also brings Washington Heights to life. And I know that's an area you're familiar with. And was it just so wonderful to write about a place you love so much? I love writing about what I don't always understand. And I have to say that as someone who's moved away from Washington Heights and visits and comes back, the transformation of the neighborhood due to gentrification and and really seeing how unsustainable living the ways that I remember living in Washington Heights with an extended family living around us with like, you know, my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, my cousins, all helping each other out with childcare and elder care has become almost impossible because the rents are totally unaffordable. This conundrum in my head about why this is not possible because, you know, policies being done in this way or, you know, capitalism works in another way really got me wanting to look at how this plays out. And yeah, so the part that was really fun for me was thinking about how all these documents that rule our lives, basically, right? Like, do you have your name on the lease? Will you succeed, you know, that apartment? Like, could you have your grandmother's apartment? <laughs> All of these questions that I think a lot of people don't actually know their rights. I lost an apartment because I didn't know my rights. And I thought, what happens when we look at these leases and really study them and think about what we're signing ourselves into, but also how can we keep these spaces that, belong to us. There are rights. You are like, I, I didn't know that I could actually keep my apartment. I didn't know how to fight for it. I just believed everything the landlord told me. So part of the use of the documents had a lot to do with me being really interested in knowing more about how laws work and what our rights are, and especially to use the book as a way to be in conversation with people who might have these questions too, and not know that as caretakers, they might have a right to inherit an apartment. Well, and gentrification is a big subject matter of the book and an important one. And I thought your point is wonderful, but I thought on the flip side of it as well, for people that aren't as familiar with what it is like for the people that are having to watch their neighborhood be gentrified, you know, what that's like, I just felt like it really put me into Cara's shoes and kind of showed me something different that I hadn't experienced before. But also it just made me so mad over and over and over again at her landlord and the management because they were doing everything they could to push everybody out. I mean, just right and left, all these silly little things. And I've obviously heard about that happening many times, but when you just see it in fiction with this character that you adore, it just, you know, is so frustrating. Well, part of it is, you know, I think we could look at it on a monetary level and say, okay, landlords need to make more money. There's more expenses. I mean, I spoke to landlords too, like, Sometimes they feel like they can't really afford to keep these buildings going, their old buildings, infrastructure, they need to raise the rent. This I get, but I, you know, more like I think about when I was thinking about Gara, like the thing that was really fun was writing a character where all her invisible labor to keep this community going 
and make it a big part of the story, how important that is, especially post-pandemic, where we, I feel like one of the things many of us learned in post-pandemic as we were staying home more, is just how much work some people do in our communities just to keep it going that went invisible before or we took for granted. And I feel like for me, that was really wonderful to think about like all the different, like, yes, gentrification is terrible because it's pushing people out, but even more terrible is that it's breaking up families and it's also destroying the infrastructure of care that our, our government is not doing. They're not taking care of our elders and they're not supporting our children. It's just, you know, so if we think, oh, if there was free education and there was free daycare and there was free elder care, then you could even argue that there's a way that we could sustain the care of our communities. And I mean, everyone's community in all classes, I see us struggling with the same problem. At least before gentrification, we had, you know, there was a, there was a structure that allowed for the care. So I like to say like Cara Romero wasn't employed, but she was employed by her community. She just wasn't getting paid for it. And I loved that aspect of the book as well. And I think you really do bring that home as the story progresses without any spoilers. But yes, but what an important pillar she was in the community and how much she was helping people. But the other issue, and she comments on this a lot throughout the story, of gentrification is that it's also switching out a lot of the businesses. So the bodegas and some of these other businesses where you can go in and get a $2 cup of coffee, suddenly you've got Starbucks or some high-end coffee and it's, you know, $10. And just some of the different things that happen when a neighborhood is is flipping and how all of those issues make it difficult to live there, not just the rent and the families being broken up, but just the entire infrastructure. Yeah, I'm glad that you saw, I mean, that's part of the work of the book. I think it's just to show how everything's changing, the ways that we live with our community, also the foods. And a lot of it is positive too, right? Like it's not all negative, but I did want to show kind of a holistic transformation in her. Like she has to change with the times, (laughs) but also like, you know, in her community and the people around her. So yeah, you know, it's funny because it's a slim book. Everyone says, oh my God, it's, it seems so short, the book, right? But the reaction is that it's a lot of story. Even if the book is short, there's a lot inside of it. And um, yeah, and it, and it was a challenge to try to get it all in there in that amount of pages because I wanted a short book. I, I aimed for a short book um, because using the monologue, I felt as, a, as, as like a choice, felt like I had to restrict to some degree the time frame. So like, if you read it a certain way, the sessions actually match the amount of time that she was in those sessions. Oh, I love that. I just loved the paperwork. I mean, truly, that was so much fun. I spent so much time pouring over it and reading them and rereading them. And like her answers are sometimes so darn funny that I just would get such a kick out of it. I'd have to kind of go back from the beginning and read it again. So I think that I don't know if that it sounds like that was an ad later on, but I just love it. I think it it really does complement the book so well. And it is a short book, but there is a lot packed in there. No, exactly. And I mean, the forms, I love forms. Like in general, I'm really interested in the hermit crab form and the essay. And I, and one thing that comes up a lot when I'm talking to my family members is the papers, the papers, the papers. We're talking about citizenship papers or leases, all the papers. 
and where are the papers? We're keeping them safe and lock and key. And I myself, as I'm moving through these papers, sometimes I think, well, like these questions are impossible. The citizenship test, the driver's test, like all these things, they feel impossible. And I imagine if you didn't speak the language, how much harder would it be? Right? Absolutely. Or like, if you're not part of a certain culture, how much harder would it be? But what if we could answer candidly? What would that look like? And I just had fun with it. This was very, the forms were probably the most joyous part of writing this book. So I was looking back, as I mentioned this morning, and the citizenship form. And so the first question, have you ever been involved in any way with torture? And Kara says, I mean, if you ask my son, he would say that I tortured him. He didn't like when I looked through his hair and dabbed lotion on his cheeks, but they were so dry. His skin. So she keeps going. And I just love like all those different answers. And at one point she says, what do all these questions say about me when they're asking whether she'd been arrested and things like that? So it's just, it is very entertaining. And I think Kara is delightful. And it just, it did make me think a lot. Well, I'm glad. That's a great response. <laughs> um, you know, when you write a novel, you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of it. You really don't know. I'm always surprised by the reader. In a good way. I've been surprised. Well, that is good. And I loved Alicia the Psychic. So tell me how Alicia the Psychic entered the story. You know, I was thinking about, you know, I always look at my horoscope like for fun, you know, I I don't as much anymore, but when I was younger, I used to look at it. And I would think how when you want to believe the horoscope, how true it seems. But when it doesn't sound like you, you're like, this is all bullshit. (laughs) And, um, And then I thought, okay, what if this character really, really believes in these things? You know, Um, what would that look like? And what if you're so desperate? This is one of the ways that you lean into understanding your life. And to do the research, I ended up going to numerous psychics and looking up horoscopes. And I saw one day as I was looking up free psychic reading, I said, okay, let me look, let me click on that button. And Elisa, it wasn't Elisa, it was another psychic, but this psychic would write to me every day, tell me today is your day. I know you're going through a hard day. Things are not, you know, things are going to get better. If you just call me, hmm, what would it look like if Kata had a relationship to a psychic? I mean, what would she do with it? Right. And, um, and suddenly that became part of the, the book. I thought it was a great ad. Yeah, it, it, that was really fun. That was really fun because, yeah, I mean, for me, because she's in such a terrible situation, I mean, she's estranged from her son, right? For 10 years. It's so painful. She doesn't have the money to pay her bills. She's lost her security from her job that she's had for like half, almost half her life. I was like, okay, her life cannot be all struggle. There has to be something to pull her out of that. Let's talk a little bit, too, about the estrangement with the son. So they're estranged. They've had a falling out. How did all of that come about? Like, where was the origin for that story? You know, I, I know of an, a numerous people that I love that have been estranged from their parents. And often they don't even understand how it happened. They can't remember how it happened or why that estrangement has took so long, like, you know, years will pass, you know, like, you know, it's wild, but I haven't talked to my mother in five years. And what's interesting is when I wrote the Minigana, actually, you're making me think about this. When I wrote the Minigana, my last novel, for some reason, that novel compelled a number of my readers 
to go to call their parents that they haven't talked to in many years. Oh, really? How delightful. And ask them questions. Yeah. And I would receive these letters from men and women who would say, I read your book and it made me think about my mother. And I called my mother. I hadn't spoken to her for four years. I was so, we had a fight. I was so angry. And your book made me want to talk to your mo- oh. my mother again. And to ask questions, right? Like they understood something about their parents that they may have not before the book. And I was thinking about that because I'm so close to my family that <laughs> what would it look like? Like, what could my mother possibly do? <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, I think a lot about, I have a, a big community. I'm, you know, very invested in queer community and thinking about like, you know, I have a son, I'm a mother of a 14 year old and thinking about like, why would I ever get in the way of him being in any love relationship? It's so hard to find love. I would be so happy for him. And thinking about that also made me think like, what, why, it, you know, and thinking also about all these laws. I mean, I, I have to say I was very influenced by the Trump presidency and the conservatism of this country. In fact, the novel started in 2017. That's when I started writing it. And I was feeling a lot of despair and thinking about, you know, all the violence on queer community all over the country and how difficult it was for people in the South, especially to, I mean, the rhetoric that was coming out in the South and continues to come out. Now it's in policy, which is even more disturbing. But one thing, you know, it's toward the end of the book, when I had to submit the book, I was like, oh my God, Gara can't say gay either. You know, they're talking about all these don't say gay laws. And here she is also struggling with saying gay. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh my God, I didn't even realize like that. And I did realize that she was struggling, but I was thinking about these people that I was so angry at. You know, I taught in Texas in a very conservative school and I would become very frustrated because I'm like, you seem like such a kind, good person. How could you support such violent policies? It just didn't make sense to me. It was, it really was difficult for me to understand. And I think with Gada, I wrote this character thinking about how can I sustain a conversation with someone I fundamentally don't agree with? And I listened and listened because even though she's lovable, she's also infuriating. Absolutely. I do agree with that. I really liked her, but there were times when I was like, oh my gosh, you know, but, but you also understand, you know, time and place as well. You know, think about generations and, where people grew up. And I just think sometimes you you don't agree with them by any stretch, but you maybe understand a little bit where the kernels come from. Yeah. But this is this is why it's so important. I think literature is so important because I think that we're living in a moment where there's not a lot of space and time, it feels like, to allow a person to speak their mind in a way where you actually get to see the nuance of what they're saying and also help contextualize why they're saying the thing they're saying, right? So in some ways, listening to Kara for this amount of time and really getting to know her in, in the end, like I was rooting for her. I was like, I want her to win. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. <laughs> and even if I started thinking like, why would she do some of these things with her son or, you know, her sister? In the end, I was like, this is an important conversation for me because I really do think that 
the world has to change. And I do think that listening and having conversations that are really uncomfortable and believing in transformation of the heart like is essential for, for something to happen. And if we're not listening to each other and we're not willing to be open to change, we're going to get nowhere. And I feel like literature allows for that. So I don't know, like, I mean, you know, it's only 12 sessions, gotta only speak, you know, she only has like 12 weeks. It's not a lot of time, but in that short amount of time, even in my writing her story, I just felt a lot more compassion towards someone like her who has estranged her son. When I believe that when I first started writing her, I was a bit judgmental. I guess I did not like certain things about her to start with, for sure. But I also understood her, I guess, sometimes and understood that, you know, she was trying in some ways and doing the best that she could. But I not saying that was correct. It was just kind of how she viewed it. And then once she understood that she'd really gotten herself into a mess with a variety of people, then she realized she had to change. But I guess, you know, you you can't start with a character that's perfect or there's nowhere for them to go. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, you know, the thing is, you know, there's this. I love this thing that George Saunders says. He says, you know, revision is love and progress. And what I'm saying is that I find her, she was like a difficult character initially and and a lot less unlikable when I first started writing her. Through revision, I found a way to write her with a lot more love and generosity. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think this is the practice, right? Like this is the practice that we should have with each other, even in everyday conversation. So a lot of times we'll listen and get on the defense, right? But in reality, if we just take a minute, take a breath and listen again, and without being defensive, without us projecting what we want from that person and really just listen to what they're saying, then maybe we can see something else there. So yeah, like, you know, I love the way George, he says something like the, the initial thing that you would write about a character might be really negative, but then you look at that sentence and you'll say, how can I love you more? And I think about that a lot. Like I, when I'm talking to someone and I angry at them, I say, how can I love you more? How can I understand you more? I remind myself to be curious. And that's how I got, got out to this place. It wasn't there in the beginning. I mean, it took me five years to write the book. Did you write Dominicana before this one or after this one? It overlapped a little bit. I started Dominicana back in 2005. And and then I struggled trying to sell it. And then I came back to it. And, and in that moment of struggling that year, 2017, I just worked on this book. And then I returned to Dominicana. So kind of both. Yes. Well, let's talk about the title. Took me a while to get it where I could get it rolling off my tongue. So it's a little bit of a longer title. I, I understand it from reading the book. But can you talk a little bit about how not to drown in a glass of water and how that became the title? You know, it wasn't the initial title. And I have to thank the poets. Um, I love the poets. I love poetry and I love, and, and it really influences me. But I'm, I have two colleagues, Diana Coywin and Yona Harvey. And after we were teaching at the University of Pittsburgh, I, I said I was struggling with a title and I needed it by the next day. And they just started asking me questions about the book. And I must have said the expression in Spanish. I feel like I'm drowning in a glass of water. In Spanish is, me estoy ahogando un vaso de agua, right? And, um, and they were like, how not to drown it? 
like you mean not to drown in a glass of water, how not to drown in a glass of water. And we just kept playing with that sentence and we came up with how not to drown in a glass of water. And it just worked, you know, it is, it's a big sentence. And, but I realized that because so many people use that expression in different languages, it actually is an invitation to the story as well. Makes people eager to see exactly what's happening. And it's kind of self-explanatory. Like, yes, you know, you can't drown in a glass of water, but some people do look like they're drowning in a glass of water. I like it. I just, like I said, it took me a little bit to get it rolling off my tongue. And it's so funny because Dominicana is one word and then you've got this big old sentence, but it's, it is perfect for the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, for me too. But I, I now love it because I say constantly. <laughs> but I love the people's reactions because I think that, you know, I don't know. I, I always say the story about my kid. Like I raised my my son trilingual. And I remember one time he's watching a movie and it was the first time he heard Spanish in a movie. And he was like seven years old. And it was an American movie. It was like a Disney movie or something. And he had heard Spanish, like this character speaks Spanish. And he yells and he goes, mom, they said something in Spanish. And I was so surprised how happy it made him. And I didn't realize that he was missing the language. And I think that anytime we see something that's familiar, like some people will get excited because the book is set in New York City or they know the street or they know the language. And I feel like that expression has that familiarity that it's just, it feels good when you see something that feels like yours inside of a book. Well, and you mentioned that familiarity. And before we started recording, you and I were talking about Washington Heights and Lin-Manuel Miranda, and that I said every time I heard Washington Heights, then I started singing his song from In the Heights. And so I was laughing because that was one of the things that drew me to the story. I love that area, and I love learning about it, and I love In the Heights. So it was just kind of fun to then read about that neighborhood as well. And now I just keep singing those songs on repeat in my head. Oh, it's awful. (laughs) It's awful. They're so catchy. They are. (laughs) (laughs) It's awful. I'm like, oh, I don't want to think about that song anymore. Well, before we wrap up, will you tell me what you've read recently that you really liked? I really love the book, The Man Who Could Move Clouds by Ingrid Roja Contreras. But I'm also reading a book that I really love right now, Roses in the Mouth of a Lion by Bushra Rahman. It's coming out in December. Another cool title. I like that title. Isn't it great? She's really great. I love, she had a short story collection I read um, set in Corona, Queens that I taught 10 years ago. And I was so excited to hear she has a novel. And it's it's like, you know, family stuff from Corona, Queens. It's like, you know, I feel like it's a sister book in some ways. Like she's writing about Queens and I'm writing about the Heights. (laughs) And it's just, I love it. I love it. Well, Angie, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was just delightful to chat with you and learn more about Cara. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, We explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. 
I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs, a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes, and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.